Good morning. Um, Acts chapter 1, please. If you could turn there. Get a Bible in your pew there, or your phone, or the Bible on the app. Have you heard about our app? Don't know you better app somebody. That was bad. It was funnier in my head than in reality. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. <laughs> I can always count on you to laugh at my jokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Acts chapter 1. So, I... Fatherhood. Any, any fathers in the room? You know, I had always imagined what fatherhood would be like um, before I had children. And it's kind of like anything in life. You imagine, you dream of what could be and should be, and then you experience what is, you know? In the, the, the raw, real nature of life, right? Um, how, this is how I imagine fatherhood to go. I imagine sitting with my son, which I have five children. The first three are boys. So, but when I imagine this, I imagine like one, may, ma, no, I shouldn't say that. I imagine lots and lots of children. But imagine sitting on the edge of like this mountain um, as we had just hiked the Appalachian Trail, and we had been journeying for days, and we were only eating what we hunted. How ridiculous is that? I mean, I'm not these guys. Like, I don't know. Um, is there a gas station around here somewhere? Uh, I imagine sitting on the edge of this, this mountain with my son, and I imagine sharing with him the life pep talk. You know what I'm talking about. The pep talk that we all dream of. Being a part of, uh, giving, receiving. This life pep talk. What is life all about? What is the big picture? What is the big dream of life? That's what I imagine. Um, Imagine sitting with my son and, and explaining to him life. Now, in reality, I'm thinking now, like, with especially my boys in particular, like, this would not go this way, how I had imagined it. You can identify, right? Like, they're hungry, Dad, there's no animals here. I'm like, there is, we've got to find them. Like, they're cold, they don't want to hear me talk anymore. Like, when you, when you preach for a living, like, you imagine that, like, you're, you're like, what God is, is, like, teaching you through the Word is actually going to affect somebody, and so you feel that way with your kids, and you dream about, like, I'm just going to share with them wisdom that I've learned from God's Word, and they're going to be, wow, Dad, that's so good, right? But now they'd be like, okay, Dad, like, wrap it up, like, this is, you know, that's the reality, but I imagine sitting there in my, in my imagination, sitting with my son and explaining the vast beauty of the moment. And saying, son, life, life is full of disappointment and pain and death and tragedy. It's real. You'll feel it to the core. But, son, 
I want you to live it all out. Like, go all out. Love hard. Go see the world. Go experience all that you can experience of God's creation and God's spirit inside of you. And experience the beauty of life and the, the, the nature of relationship. And being, yes, get your heart broken, but understand that God is ultimately there and he's healing you and he's helping you. And he is your guide and that this is what life is all about. And he's going to use you to change the world, Right? There's this huge like, like paradox, I don't know if that's the right word, of like explaining to them the reality of pain and death that would make all of us want to like do nothing, to be crippled in our fear, to be paralyzed by our own fear or our own failure of what could be and might be what it is. But there's something inside of us as fathers. There's something inside of us as as women and men, as people, that this thing called hope, that we truly believe in it, we always want it to outweigh the the fear of what could happen. I mean, if you've seen any stunt video, there's this balance of like, I could die, but I could win. I could break the record. You know, there's there's this risk of this, this huge separation of what, you dream of. But I would tell my son to go. To journey hard. To give it your all. God is going to use you to change the world. The book of Acts is just that. In this case, though, it's not a father telling his son on the side of a mountain. It's actually the son of God telling his disciples, his followers, his friends, that they're about to change the world through his spirit. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, guys, this is going to be awesome. Like, like you want to know how famous I'm going to be. You guys are going to be, like, famous. And it's going to be, I mean, you're going to be, they're going to even call you saint. (laughs) No. He prepared them for the reality that they were going to face. And if you've read the book of Acts, you see that. And if you've read church history, you see that. That the reality that they faced to the point of death. They had this hope. They had this hope in Jesus Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the loving Father God had sent them, had commissioned them, had told them to go and to live and to proclaim the truth. At the core of everything that we do, when we journey, when we climb things and we find new jobs and we entrepreneur things and we have families and we provide, like at the root of all of those things is, is what we call motive. The disciples' motive, the apostles' motive, was to proclaim truth. Period. So, today is, is, is the start of uh, a short series. <laughs> not, not really at all. Uh, we're starting a, a series, a long journey uh, today called Vintage Church. And Vintage Church is a study not just through the book of Acts, 
but that's where we're, our main context is going to be. But it's a, it's a journey through the early church, the, the vintage church, the, when the church began from Acts 1 and then to Pentecost and where, when Jesus ascended to this very day. But we're not stopping it. Like, we're not just talking about what was. We're talking and dreaming. We're asking ourselves, what if? What is God's plan for the church? It's not outdated. It's, it's vintage. And there's some things, there's some nuggets that we pull out. And as, as uh, Pastor Cameron said last night, like, and I agree with this, we, we hear this comment a lot about like, man, we just need to go back to, to, the, to the vintage church, to the early church. And there's obviously, when we read the word, you're going to see so many aspects of it. Like, man, that is amazing. I mean, you talk about community. You talk about signs and wonders. You talk about miraculous things happening in homes and the lives of people and how the gospel spread. Like, that's amazing. But then there's some other parts that like, he pointed out. He's like, yeah, we'll leave that out. Let's not, let's not be that church, right? Let's not experience what they experienced, whether it's Ananias and Sapphira or what we, we're going to get to at some point, the church of Corinth. Like, there's lots of things that we can, like, uh, pitfalls that we can step over as the church. But nonetheless, let's see the big picture through God's word of what his plan is for the church. Not plan was for the church. The best days for the church, I believe, are ahead of us. And I'm not talking about conduit specifically, although we're a part of the big mosaic of the big capital C church. But this is the dream that God has for us, through us, is to still change the world by proclaiming truth. By proclaiming truth. Let's look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And today, when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he, rep- he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So let me just back up a step. And I know that um, for me, sometimes understanding the word of, of God and understanding the depths and the history and, and like the, 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 the heart of what, what's happening here, I have to sometimes in my own mind break it apart and, and look at like the basic meaning of it. So I don't, I'm not sure your, your church experience or your, your Bible knowledge, so let me just assume that you're like me, where sometimes you just, it just needs to be simply broken down. The book of Acts, um, it's not some like fancy word. Acts is Acts. It's just a, a bunch of Acts. It's, it's the Acts of the Apostles is the long name of it. Like there are foolish acts and there are funny acts. You get what I'm trying to say? So this isn't some churchy word, the book of Acts. This is simply telling you the truth. This is telling you what happened. Now if we're to back up one step back into the book of John, the last, you're, you're right there. So just look right across the page or the, right before there. The last verse of John says, 
Um, this is obviously after the, the life of Jesus and all that had happened, um, the death, the burial, the resurrection, um, empowering of the disciples. And here we are at verse 25 of, of John 21. It says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. <laughs> is that surprising? Not at all. Now there's many other things that weren't in the Bible. And that's where I'm like, ah! Like this is a big book, but I'm like, Come on, like, I want to know more. I want to know more of what he did. But it says that even that big of a book wouldn't contain it. In fact, the exact words that John uses were, in the middle of verse 25 is, where every one of them were to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So this was, Jesus was God with skin. He was the Son of God sent to redeem the world. And so I have to think when, when people say, like, well, like, God did so many things, and he had you on his mind, and he, he, he probably did things with his disciples individually, even though maybe all of his disciples weren't named in heroic stories or even redeemable stories like betraying Jesus. Even in that, God still had this, Jesus had this ministry to each one of them. Jesus had this ministry that was beyond just the official last three years of his life ministry. And even in 33 years, it says that it couldn't contain all the books in the world, could not write all that Jesus did. That's fascinating to me. And here we are telling the story of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, who are the Apostles? Who are the Apostles? The Apostles, essentially were the first leaders of the church. They were the disciples, that, and, and who were the disciples? They were the first like followers. They were the first friends of Jesus that began to drop their everything, and they began to follow Jesus. And if you're not familiar with Jewish culture, I won't dive too deeply into it, but, but like, why 12, and why are they called this, or why, why do they need to drop? Why couldn't they just like follow Jesus on the weekends? Because that's like what you do, right? As a Christian, you just do that on the weekends, right? You just do your other thing during... Jiving? No? No. It's a full-on, full day. Like, they dropped their nets. They dropped their life. They denied themselves. And every day they began to follow Jesus. And so what did that look like for them? For them it was, they were, um, in the Jewish culture, that there was by a certain age that you were uh, recruited by a rabbi, a teacher of the law, a teacher of, of the uh, a huge part of the Old Testament, the Torah specifically, and they would, they would gather these young men, um, typically before the age of 12, to follow them. These guys, these disciples that were chosen, were not under 12. They were, a lot of them were just above 12. Some were a little bit older, it's said, but, but they were like teenagers, so Jesus was a youth pastor at first, right? <laughs> I can relate. Like, it's, it's his job. Like, no wonder he only did it three years. Like, he's like, I can't do this. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, he truly went after the heart through the youth of these men. And he says, like, these guys, they didn't get picked to, be, to follow a rabbi. So they had to pick up a trade. They had to get a J-O-B. And so they literally, they went to be fishermen. They went to be all these other things. They picked up a trade so that they could make a living. And Jesus went after them. Do you ever feel that way? Like, 
Sometimes we find our significance because of what we do or who chooses us or who doesn't choose us. And sometimes we get caught in what the world says is value. And we need to be reminded, and we can't just skip over the fact that these disciples were chosen by Jesus. These were the, this was the B team. This was the JV. And Jesus chose them to flip the world upside down. And so it's no different for you and for me. Be encouraged by that. God's not looking for this resume of talents and treasures and bank accounts that are overflowing and that like you're, you just got it all put together. You know who he's looking for? You. You. He didn't just come to die and to lead some. He came for you. If you're hearing this, if you're hearing this, and you're hearing that the gospel says that you can be forgiven of your sins. And you can be received by Jesus. And you can deny yourself and put down your nets and follow him. Then guess what? That means you. The invitation is open. The invitation is extended. So for these disciples, they went from teenagers to leaders of a revolution that changed everything. But they still leaned on Jesus. They still leaned on who he was. I mean, again, Jesus was, was teaching them so many things and that like all of a sudden they, they sensed this tension was happening and that they were after Jesus and that Jesus was even saying that like my days are fewer. My days are fewer. And they're like, whatever, Jesus. And like Peter even is the guy that's like, whatever, do they mess with you? They're going down and like he literally proved it when they arrested Jesus. He cut the dude's ear off. Like that even proved the fact that Peter was like, all right, bring it. Like he was the guy with the, the sword permit and he was ready to go protect what was happening all around. Like, that was that guy. They were, they were prepared for what was about to happen, but the person that was the most prepared was Jesus. And as he laid down his life, and he was arrested, and he was betrayed, and he was denied, and he was beaten, and he hung on that cross, for you and for me as a sacrifice and atonement, that him paying the price for sin, period, meant he paid the price for your sin, period. And he died. He didn't just fall asleep. He didn't fake it. He took his last breath. And Jesus, God with skin, was separated from his Father for the first time in all of eternity. Was separated to the point where he cries out, My God, Father, Abba. The most intimate thing that he could say. Abba, Abba, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? And everybody around him is like, well, what's he, who's he talking about? Because they didn't see it. But Jesus saw it and Jesus felt it. Because that's all Jesus ever has known is communion and conversation and prayer and constant flow from the Father to Him. He constantly felt that in relationship. The Son to the Father. And in that moment, He felt this chasm of empty, forsaken. Why did God leave him? Because God is holy. God is holy. God will always be holy. And for that moment, God sent Jesus and Jesus chose in that moment to not be holy by claiming your sin, paying the penalty for your sin on the cross, dying as a nail in the coffin to say your sin has been paid for. 
So three days later, you know the story. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He conquered death and he captured all those that are consumed by death and sin. Ultimately, he holds the keys to that and he offers it freely to us. This is the gospel. And here we are, Acts 1. Jesus is appearing before his disciples and he is... Uh, or excuse me, not just his disciples, that it talks about how he appeared to over 500, get this, imagine, these are real people. These are real people around the, the region of Jerusalem. Over 500 people who either saw Jesus dead, heard he was dead, confirmed he was dead, that now have seen Jesus alive. Over 500 people. And like, this is not, let me just step outside of the word for a second. This is not just biblical history. You look up first century Jewish historians, they say it too. This guy was dead. He's alive. So what's the further proof? Is that here he's for 40 days, 40 days, the resurrected Jesus is walking around teaching Preaching, proving, loving, receiving, proclaiming, getting them ready. Because there's a huge change coming. He's leaving. He's leaving. Teaching the kingdom of God. Next verse, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John, excuse me, for, for, let me back up. For the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they had asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, but, before I get into one of the most uh, popular uh, or well-known verses of the Bible, I want you to see this word but. All that I just explained, all that Jesus had done, had brought them to this point. Jesus, I mean, he is, he is roasting the dead. Like, the plan has come together. He's getting ready to leave. And in fact, when he, he's not just bringing up this, this first time about the Holy Spirit. He's described in the past that it's even better. That, like, when, it's better that I physically leave this planet than I send the Comforter. I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. He's saying that's better. That the Holy Spirit dwell inside of you than for Jesus himself to live here. I love that. He's always honoring the Father. The Father's always honoring the Son. And the Son's always honoring the Holy Spirit. And he's saying it's better. The moment is prepared. And he leaves. But before he leaves, as he's explaining what's about to happen... The disciples do what they always do. They see short-sighted. They see like narrow-minded. They see like what's right here rather than what's right 
here. So do we. What did the disciples ask? They asked, is this, is this the time? What does it say in verse 7? It says, is, is, like, is this the time where you're now going to restore Israel? This is it. Jesus, you've done it. You died. You rose. Oh, yeah. We're taking Israel back for Jesus, man. This is going to be awesome. This country, this nation, these people will never be the same. These Romans, man, they've been pushing us around. They killed you, Jesus. But they're getting out of here now because we're going to restore it all. Right, Jesus? Right? Like we're going to make everything back the way it was, right? And Jesus is like, really? For real? That's your focus? You're worried just about the nation politically? I want to change the world. I want to fill the hearts of every believer. I want to forgive the world of their sins. I want, no, no, bigger than that. I don't want just Israel to know about it. I want the world to know about it. To the Jew, to the Gentile. I want, like, do you remember what happened back in the garden, guys? Do you remember Adam and Eve? Do you remember that thing they did? They disobeyed God. And because of that death and sin ruined everything and death by sin like the whole idea I just died guys and here I am trying to like get you ready and you're focused on politically the country you're missing the point they got so short-sighted and I don't blame them I'm not trying to belittle the fact I mean I've tried to explain this to my kids is like For them in this time, the Roman Empire had invaded their country, invaded Israel. All that Israel had been through, the bondage, freedom, the bondage, the freedom. I mean, they were just waiting for, like, God to do it again. So part of it was based on faith and what God was capable of. Are you with me? Um, But they they were so consumed and and short-sighted just seeing about themselves and their nation. And they missed that God isn't coming to make everything necessarily restored politically just for your nation. He's going after the souls of the world. And that's what Jesus is after today. So many of us come in here and we have, and I live there too, we have these things in our life that like we, we bring to the Lord. We want him to fix. We want him to address. We want him to heal. We want him to radically change. And he can. And he will. But he's after something bigger. And, and for a lot of us, if, if we've not um, given our life, our soul, to Jesus for salvation and eternal life in heaven, that's what he's after. He's after you. He wants to be with you. He was forsaken by his Holy Father so he could be with you. He rose from the dead so he could be with you. This is what he's after. And so I just would ask you right now, like, before we go any further, um, what is it in your life right now in this moment that you've come in and it's, it's totally needs redeemed, totally needs healed, totally needs dealt with, but is God asking you to look at something bigger? Have you given him your heart? 
Have you given them your life? And what was Jesus truly asking of these disciples was past their heart. He was asking for their life. He was asking for their life. Look at verse 8. But, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Like, I think they were good with Jerusalem. Like, okay, here we go. Yes, okay, we're going to restore. He is answering my question. Like, here we go, Jerusalem and Judea. And even Samaria, I mean, it's like a, it's a center of Palestine. It's kind of like when you and your brother are fighting and your, your, uh, your mom's like, all right, give him a hug. And you're kind of like, mm, like, they're, in their heart, they're kind of like, yeah, okay, Samaria. But to the end of the earth, for real? What? And then, okay, let me back up a step because they weren't just talking about witnesses. Do you know what the original word here is and the original meaning is? And, and I don't think it's, in, it's translated this way because I think where your mind's about to go, there's some reality, but it's not the full picture. But the original word here for witnesses, do you know what it is? Martyrs. Martyrs. So, so Jesus wasn't leading them particularly or directly to a suicide mission. That, that was not the point. But he knew by them denying themselves and dropping their nets and following Jesus that it eventually might mean that. So as the disciples gathered around, and I'm thinking about this as we're singing, and we're singing, here's my heart, Lord. Like for them, they couldn't just do that. Like here's my body. Here's literally my breath. Here's literally me being killed for my faith. And Pastor Cameron kind of lined out last night, like, we have no idea what the word martyr, being martyred for your Christianity looks like in the United States of America. And I'm not even going to try to touch that. Because we have no idea and never have. Never have. Um... Just parked it for a second. Like when you, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, when He fills you with power, when He fills you with authority, this is not the moment to gloat. This is not the moment to just soak it up. This is the moment to go and to be my witnesses. To like the Father would say to the Son on the side of the mountain, is to go, and yes, you will experience the most amazing things, and you will branch out, and you will launch out, and you will live, and you will change the world, but you may face death. You may face pain. You will face trial. But what does Jesus say earlier? That I, in this case, I have overcome the world. And so for these early followers, for this vintage church, it was the core of this, that it didn't matter what this life brought them. Life Death, 
full, empty. What does Paul eventually say in Philippians? He's like, whether I'm full or that I'm empty, whether I have enough or whether I have nothing, I will be content. This is like the coffee cup Jesus, like, Christianity verse that like, like oh, I have like Philippians 4 and everything. I can do all things through Christ. Nobody realizes that this dude wrote from a cold jail cell. Jail cell, that verse. He was being persecuted because he loved Jesus above his own life. And I know we have no idea about this. And I'm not saying that like, like you have no idea what it's like to be discounted for your faith, and I'm not, I'm not addressing that, but I just want for a moment for us to have a glimpse of what this vintage church looked like, because here's the thing, I'm not even going to stand here and predict that, you know, United States of America is going to be in this spot, and you need to be ready, like, I don't know, I'm not even going to go there, but here's where I am going to go, is that that same heart that those disciples had, that same heart that those apostles had, that same heart that the vintage church, the early church had, I want that, whether my life is taken from me because I love Jesus or not. Because Jesus wants something even better than you being a martyr. He wants your life. And if your life is short or long, He wants your life. Because He knows that in that life, in that abundant life, with the filling of the the Holy Spirit and the power and the authority that He's talking about here, it didn't just free you. And it's not the point to just free you. It's supposed to overflow to every single person around you. Every single person in your home, your church, and your community into the ends of the earth. So for them, they didn't hear Jesus say at that moment, they're going to be martyrs, but they understood that it might require that. And how do they know? Because their leader, Jesus, had just been killed. 2016, um, I know people joke of all the celebrities that were lost and and how hard things were, and shoot, I'm over at uh, middle school every Tuesday for a thing called Impact, and they can't get over this joke about Harambe, the gorilla that was taken in 2016. They have no idea, like, the depths of what we really think it was a horrible year. But do you know what 2016 was? It was what they have recorded as the worst year yet for Christian persecution around the world. An estimated 90,000 Christians were killed. You get that? 90,000. Um, even just on Easter morning um, in the country of Pakistan, Easter morning, 70, mostly women and children, were murdered because they were Christians and they were celebrated, celebrating a risen Christ. Countries like Yemen and Pakistan and Sudan. And some of us know missionaries or people that even in the last year or two have either been targeted or killed because they're Christians. Not because they're, they're, they're practicing bad business or they broke the law or that the law had been set that you don't worship Jesus or maybe it was uh, they didn't like what was happening because they loved Jesus and they were killed. This is the, the you see it sometimes on the news regarding the, the, the poignant uh, direction of ISIS and what they desire. They say about 50-60% of those um, that were killed for their faith in Jesus were because of direct, directly because of ISIS. So they're not the only ones committing this. Um, but it's a reality that we live in. 
Um, and again, this isn't, this isn't proclaimed to, to scare us. It didn't scare them, though. There's this phrase in church history um, that says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, they were ready. See, they had, when they came to Christ, this is the, 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 I really want you to get this, is that when they came to Christ, they, they had denied themselves at that moment. Everything. They had denied everything in that moment because they were so consumed with the power of the Holy Spirit and the fact that He can forgive all of their sins and free them and heal them and unite them with a body of the gospel community. Excuse me. They were so consumed with that that they denied themselves and they picked up their cross to follow Jesus. But you will receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jerusalem, the city. Judea, essentially the county, just for our understanding. Samaria, the overall region, and the end of the earth is the end of the earth. Do you know how long they were essentially in Jerusalem? No, they were in Jerusalem because of direct orders of, of Jesus. He says, remember a few verses back, he says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until I send the Holy Spirit. Until you receive Him. You stay right here. And we're going to hit next week, like what actually happened in chapter 2 and how that changed everything and how thousands came to the saving knowledge of what Jesus was and is. Um, and as the Holy Spirit did miraculous things and began to do miraculous things uh, from that point on, from in the early church, this new church at Pentecost to chapter 2 and 3 and healing, and like uh, so many amazing, miraculous things began to happen. But until then, he says, wait. Wait in Jerusalem. And God still did all those miraculous things. And this is the truth. And they lived to proclaim the truth. But do you know how, about how long they stayed in Jerusalem? About eight years. Before they truly started branching out. In fact, these disciples, at this point there were 11 disciples. If you go to the end of chapter 1, they appoint a 12th disciple. Because you remember one of the disciples, Judas, was the one that betrayed Jesus. Uh, he hung himself. And so they felt like 12 was the number we need to, to, to continue with. So they appointed Matthias. But all that to say, there's 11 disciples at that point, And as Jesus was telling them this, and as he eventually left them and sent the Holy Spirit, he understood that those guys, those direct men, Peter, James, John, would probably die because of their faith. Do you know what happened to James? James was the half-brother of Jesus. Mary and Joseph, remember them? Christmas, and you remember all that? They had a, they had a son between the two of them, eventually, that was Jesus' younger brother, half, younger half-brother, um, named James. James was one of the disciples. If there's any proof 
<laughs> that Jesus was God. It's the fact that his brother worshipped him. All right? Think about that. Like, like, all right, how many brothers have brothers worshipping each other? So, like, that continued to prove it. Nonetheless, at that moment, James is hearing this. He grew up with Jesus. His half-brothers, his mom and dad, like, they had the same mom and dad as far as by, or on the earth. And, like, here he is. Like, James is like, to the end I will go. Years later, James was brought up to the top of the temple. And they say, recant that you love your brother and worship him as God. Recant. He says, I will not. And they shoved him off the top of the temple. And when he landed, he wasn't dead. And his. <laughs> And they said, recant that you worship and proclaim that your half-brother is God. And he says, I will not. And they clubbed him to death. Stephen, stoned to death. Peter, <laughs> if you were here last night, you this miraculous redemption of what Peter did and, and what Jesus did. And Peter eventually was sentenced to be crucified like his Savior. But in honor of his Savior, he says, please don't crucify me. Crucify me upside down. John. Boiled in oil. Lived through it. Cast in exile to the island of Patmos. You could go through church history. You could go through what happened in the first century, the second century, and on and on and on. For sport, Christians were brought into the Roman Colosseum and lions were released and they chased the Christians around until they were consumed and eaten. Wrapped in hay and straw, set on fire for entertainment. This is no new thing. This is no old thing. This is the thing that God has called us to past our life and past how we take our last breath. He's after something better. He's after life. And could it be, could it be that the very trial, the, the very hell that we're put through is the actual platform for the gospel and the truth to be proclaimed? Because here's what it comes down to. Those early Christians those witnesses that received the Holy Spirit and after the Holy Spirit came on them, they were witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the end of the earth. Guess what? Here, here's the thing. They didn't come up with some great idea or read some great book and were inspired. They saw Jesus. And like they saw him and they believed that it was so real that they were willing to die for it. Imagine that. Imagine, like, I know we put a lot of, like, different perspectives on those early followers in this vintage church, but imagine a room just like this. And every single one of you this week saw Jesus physically, and then some of you maybe saw him as it says later on that he ascended. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as they went, behold, two men by them in white robes said to, these, to men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Imagine that. 
Imagine church, so to speak, the next week. Did you see him? I saw him. And he was gone. Can you believe this? Can you believe? Are you What? Like, can you believe this? He's real. This is not just some crazy guy on a mountain that had a vision. These are people like you and me that saw and experienced Jesus and then were filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. And everything changed. And for them, their pain was, their, their, their trial and their persecution was not this thing that they were like, oh, anything but that. They even said that can be a stage for me to proclaim what happened. That can be a place where I can, can proclaim the truth. What is the, what is the persecution? What is the trial? What is the hell that you're going through? You see, like so many of us come in and so many of us pray and we're asking God to prevent trial. We're asking God to prevent the pain. We're asking God to (laughs) just don't let it happen. Rather than God resurrecting your body. God healing the pain. God saving your soul. We're more interested in prevention than we are resurrection. God's in the resurrection, if you couldn't tell. Because he knows that with that comes your heart, comes your body, comes your life, comes your time, comes everything. So my question to you this morning as we close, what is this trial in your life that you so badly Don't want to be a part of. God wants to resurrect that thing. He wants to speak life into that place. And he wants to use that ultimately, that pain, that trial, that tribulation that he's resurrecting you out of. He wants to use that as a stage for you to proclaim the truth. For you to proclaim what happened. For you to proclaim your testimony. Not your testimony. The testimony of Jesus through you. And that is what it was for the Vintage Church. And that's what we're inviting you into. There's a pastor by the name of Mark Batterson, and he says this quote. He says, uh, uh, everyone wants a miracle, but no one wants to be in a situation that necessitates a miracle. Well, maybe you're here today, and you're in a situation that necessitates a miracle. Maybe you don't think you're in a situation that necessitates a miracle, but you are. Whether you need salvation, or whether you need His presence, or whether you need His healing, or whether you need His joy, He's here, He's present, and He wants to meet with you, and He wants to remind you of who you are by reminding you of who He is. So as you stand, I just want to invite you to, in your mind, go ahead and stand. I want to invite you in your mind In your heart, are you fully given to Him? Have you denied yourself? Have you laid down your nets to follow Him? Maybe that trial or that pain or that thing that you're trying to wiggle out of is yourself in your own plan. He's got a better plan. He's got a better place. He's got something He wants for you.
And yeah, that requires circumstance. And yeah, of course, he wants to bring things to you. But you know the greatest thing he wants to bring to you is himself. Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you, to live inside of you, to set you free. So this morning, if you need prayer, man, oh man, are there some people that want to pray with you? If you need prayer for something, speak it. If you need prayer with just you and Jesus, make a place for that to happen. But we are here to help. We are here to encourage. We pray for you as we worship at the end. God, we just thank you and we praise you for who you are, what you've done. We thank you that you sometimes allow these, these things in our life not for us just not to celebrate the trial, not to celebrate the pain, but to make us fully aware as it was for these early Christians that sometimes it took them to get out of Jerusalem. It was because of persecution. To get them out of Judea was because they were being scattered. To get them to go to the end of the earth as a nation, they were scattered so that they could proclaim truth by that scattering, by that persecution, by that trial. You used that. You used that to resurrect their life, to resurrect the testimony for the salvation of many. And here we stand in Jamestown, New York. We know there's a lineage of the church. We know there's a lineage of your plan A for the world. And we are the vintage church. We look quite a bit different. We certainly speak differently. We certainly live differently. We certainly have different kinds of dangers. But we love the same, same God. We love you, Jesus.